we had 25 plus social media accounts, whether it's Facebook, Twitter. So we had all of those accounts. So we were using social media to communicate with our community. But also in doing that, we found, okay, we're coming across crime. We're, we're coming across people sharing links to child pornography, to um, talking about that they witnessed a shooting, um, that they witnessed a murder. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, GoLawEnforcement.com has the largest listing of law enforcement job openings. The requirements to be a police officer are different for every state. To find out if you meet the requirements to be a police officer in your state, Take a short three-question quiz by going to golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. That's golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. Every day we hear about another type of cybercrime that's occurred. It has either affected you or someone you know. Our guest is Los Angeles County Sheriff's Detective Tony Moore with the Criminal Intelligence Bureau Cyber Intelligence Unit. Detective Moore is going to explain what is occurring with cybercrime and how law enforcement is combating cybercriminals. Detective Moore, welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I'm uh, really happy to be here. And you're a detective with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and you work in a specialized area. What is that specialization? Yeah, so uh, currently I work for um, Los, Angeles, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and I'm assigned to their Criminal Intelligence Bureau, um, and more specifically, the Cyber Intelligence Unit. And how did you begin your law enforcement career? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, kind of interesting. I, I, I started my career um, in uh, the retail field, actually, and I was a loss prevention manager for, for Sears. And uh, worked there for seven years and uh, really, uh, to be honest, really had an interest in FBI going federal um, because I was really involved in, you know, um, internal investigations. And and that was right at the start of identity theft and and forgery fraud and when all that started to become rampant, like in the mid 1990s. And then, you know, debit cards came out. So that was a it was a really big thing um, with regards to cyber and using the Internet uh, uh, for uh, for crime. And so, uh, you know, I, I also applied for the sheriff's department and I can just honestly say that sheriff's department picked me first. <laughs> so that's where I went. And I presume that you you worked your way up through the ranks to where you are now. Can you talk about some of the some of the units that you worked in? Yeah. So um, with the sheriff's department, you know, Los Angeles County, uh, and I don't know if this is the same for all sheriff's department, but in Los Angeles County, you start your career uh, in the custody uh, field. Now, more so, we have what we call a two-track where we give the we give the deputy an option. They can either, um, once they get out of the academy, they can either go the custody track and they stay their entire career um, in custody. Uh, and then we have the patrol track where they'll do their anywhere from two to five years and then they'll go to patrol and then they go out in the patrol track. So um, it, it kind of gives that applicant, um, that, that trainee, uh, that opportunity to make that decision on what career they want. Um, obviously, more people select the patrol field because a lot of people sign up to become, to become uh, you know, patrol deputies. So 
um, you know, I started, uh, did my, my time in custody. Then I went out to patrol, uh, work patrol for about eight years and then, uh, went to our sheriff's information bureau, which is, which is our public information office. And, um, and then, you know, worked there for, for a few years and then went back to patrol just because, uh, I just wanted to get more experience and be a training officer. And then I was called back again, believe it or not, to uh, Sheriff's Information Bureau to start a new unit um, called the Electronic Communications Triage Unit. And then uh, from there was asked to to uh, go to the Criminal Intelligence Bureau and, and help start up the cyber intel portion of that. And so our Criminal Intelligence Bureau is only two years old now. So um, we're still kind of developing um, that field. And so that's where I'm at right now. The L.A. County Sheriff's Department, that's the largest in the world. Is that correct? Yes. Now, if you look at, um, you know, the, the area that we patrol and the area of responsibility, absolutely, it's the largest sheriff's department in the world. Do you know about how many sworn uh, personnel you have? Yes, I think the last count was uh, right around 9,400 uh, sworn. Um, we're a little less than LAPD. LAPD has uh, Los Angeles Police Department. They have, I, I think, just shy of uh, 10,000. Um, but, uh, you know, that number fluctuates. Um, right now, um, we're going through a very uh, intense hiring uh, campaign, and that's just because you know we're we're losing several deputies just through attrition, through transferring out to other agencies, and then the big one is just retiring. So, um, if you're interested in becoming a Los Angeles County uh, Sheriff's uh, deputy, um, you know we're looking for you. So, uh, um, please, you know, please apply. We're looking for good applicants. You mentioned that your cyber unit's about two years old. Was there any special training that you had, either training or education, that positioned you to get into this unit? Um, no. Uh, I A lot of my training I learned on my own. Um, I could say uh, uh, since I was a kid, um, I just, uh, in a nutshell, I just took things and I was interested in them, so I took them apart. Uh, so I can learn. I would put them back together. Uh, my first computer was Commodore 64. Uh, actually, the VIC-20, which is before the Commodore 64. Uh, that was my first computer. I was 12 years old, and I just started coding then and just always uh, been in love with computers and computer systems. And and uh, when the Internet came along, uh, you know, I jumped on that very early on. Uh, became interested in that. And then, like I mentioned with Sears, uh, I started noticing that there was crime taking place on, online with regards to, you know, credit card fraud and, and things like that. So um, that kind of geared me towards, okay, hey, I really want a law enforcement path in this. Uh, I ultimately want to end up in some type of cyber-related job with the Sheriff's Department or with any law enforcement agency to where I can have an effect. Because I was doing a great job for Sears, but, you know, I wanted to help out you know, the community and, and those victims that are being victimized online. Um, so no formal training. It was just something that I've learned along the way. Um, you know, whether it was, you know, later on social media now, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of considered a law enforcement expert in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as well. Um, a lot of those things I just, I just took an interest in and just remained a student and, uh, just really, you know, that's my passion. And so anything cyber related and, and cyber crime and investing in those type, investigating those types of things is always a passion of mine. So. I'm sure a lot of people have different ideas when they think of cyber crime. For you as a law enforcement officer working in cyber crimes, what do you consider to be cyber crime? Computer crime, cyber crime, or, or, or using a, a device or a system, whether it's a phone, because your phone can be a computer. Um, 
or a website or uh, some type of system online uh, for nefarious purposes. And so that would be the best definition of, uh, of cybercrime, using that to commit crime. And what type of specific crimes, frauds, do you investigate as, as part of a cybercrime? Um, it can be credit card fraud. Um, it can be network intrusions. Um, it could be uh, ransomware. It could be phishing. Um, any type of uh, unauthorized access to a network system, um, anything along those lines uh, would fall under the purview. When you have a bank robbery, the bank is going to be located in your jurisdiction. Obviously, uh, the victim's in your area. The suspect has come in your area at least to commit that robbery. But in a cybercrime, you know, you could have a, a suspect anywhere in the world. So what, what kind of challenges does that present from an investigative standpoint? Yeah, you know, that's a good question, um, because uh, what, I, what I found with patrol deputies is there's a misunderstanding of where that responsibility lies. And what I always tell, you know, I always tell our best, well, when it comes to our agency, if someone comes to your reports of crime and it's online, we take the report. That's just what we do. Um, we won't say, well, you need to it over there, it occurred in another city, so you got to call that city's agency. No, we don't do that. Um, we'll take the report. And we'll refer it if we have to, but we get the information we need to get, and then we'll pass that on to the other agency um, if it's not anything workable for us. Um, but yeah, there's there's that there's that understanding that you got to work with partner agencies, and having that good uh, collaboration and that and that um, you know those sources um, and other agencies is very very important when it comes to cybercrime. Um, what I wanted to just touch on too is that a lot of people don't understand is that let's say you live in Los Angeles. Your bank account gets taken, or, or let's say someone does a, a fraudulent credit card transaction in Georgia. Uh, that the crime occurs where you live. It's your bank account. Your bank is there in Los Angeles. Just because the person did the crime over in Georgia doesn't mean that the crime didn't occur in Los Angeles. So um, that's the way we look at it: is where does the person live? They're the victim. That's where they live. That's where the crime occurred. Now we'll work with that other jurisdiction to do whatever we can. Um, and obviously, if they have the resources to tackle that that problem in Georgia and find the suspect there, if they happen to be there, because, you know, a cybercrime, they could be anywhere, you know, we'll work with them. So, you know, key to that is having that collaboration, working with other agencies. And in cybercrime, you've got to have your contacts and your connections to, to, to assist. It's not a it's not a one pan, uh, one person or, or one man show. So. With the cyber cases that you have, how common is it where the suspects are outside the United States? Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, it's very often, um, you know, there's, I don't want to name any countries, but, uh, I think, um, there's quite a few, um, nefarious activities, whether it's with regards to selling, uh, your personal information online. Uh, a lot of those people that obtain that information are in other countries. And so it's very, very hard to get at them. Um, it's not impossible. Um, it has been done. I know the Department of Justice, Secret Service, FBI have all uh, prosecuted some su successful cases of apprehending individuals uh, that were selling, um, you know, what we call track one, track two data, which is the data on the back of your credit card, um, that information to make other credit cards. So it's not impossible. It is definitely not out outside the realm of, of, of prosecution. And, um, you know, we have skills and things that we can do to find an individual. So, but unfortunately, yes, um, a, a large portion of that does happen outside the country. Do you have much recourse when you have suspects outside the U.S.? 
Um, it, it really depends on where they're at um, and whether or not we, um, our country has a good working relationship with that country. If we have, if we have an extradition treaty or if just the political environment is not good at this particular time. Um, sometimes we may not even have an extradition treaty with that country, but if we have a good re- working relationship with them, our state department, their state department, and we can come to an agreement to at least apprehend that person and show them how serious uh, of offenses this person's committed, then yeah, uh, it's a great, uh, you know, we have a better chance of apprehending that individual. Otherwise, there's no, you know, no standing treaty and that we just don't work well with that country. Yeah, it can be hard to to apprehend that person. Um so, yeah, that, that's the only drawback with cyber. You had mentioned uh, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. Can you just give a kind of a really short overview of what those are and how those have changed the world of, of cyber crimes? <laughs> okay, so uh, so I, I teach a three-day course, okay, on, on Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and investigating. So to sum it up um, for you, um, so let me just stick with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, meaning it involves cryptographic functions in order for it to work. Um, some people get that confused with virtual currency, like PayPal um, is a virtual currency. It's something that just uses the internet to send money. Um, your bank account, your credit card, you know, virtual money. Um, you don't actually have money in your bank. It's ones and zeros that your bank either you know credits you or debits you. Um, so that's a virtual currency. Cryptocurrency involves cryptogra- cryptographic functions in order for it to work. So Bitcoin was created in 2008 by a person or entity named Satoshi Nakamoto, whose sole purpose was to create a, a peer-to-peer system um, so that people can transact online. That's all it was for, was to send money from one person to another. And how can we do that um, securely? without being attacked, without using a bank, without um, using a credit card or any other third party? How can I send money from me to you? And so he came up, he took several um, uh, cryptographic algorithms from from predecessors, people that have developed different things and brought them all together. Uh, The one problem that they couldn't solve was what we call the double spend or the fraudulent transaction. How do you how do you prevent someone from sending, you know, I send money to you, but then I also send it to another person at the exact same time. Well, that's what the mediary does. That's what the bank does. It says, yes, you either have the money or you don't. Um, and when you go to a store and you transact, that's what they're doing. They're saying, is them funds available? And they're checking for you. So there's that central authority. Well, the science and the, the great thing about what Satoshi Nakamoto created with Bitcoin was the fact that there's no central authority. And they do that by a system uh, called the blockchain and uh, the peer-to-peer network. So when I say I want to send money from me to you, um, I broadcast that to the entire network. The entire network has a collaboration of every transaction that's ever taken place since 2009. And they know how much money I have. So if I send it to one person and then I broadcast that same peer-to-peer network, I'm sending it to another person, they'll say, "Uh uh-uh, he's already sending it to someone else. So that peer-to-peer network in sense uh, becomes the central authority and that does, you know, uh, prevents a double spend. So there's no, there's no actual token taking place that's being exchanged. It's just a unit of value. And right now, you know, Bitcoin price is at $16,000 a a Bitcoin. Um, That's all purely uh, by supply and demand. You know, the price fluctuate based on supply and demand. 
Um, so uh, the, the big thing about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is that that's the great invention. Now there's over you know, a thousand other alternative currencies out there, but Bitcoin's the main one. I kind of equate that to VHS and Betamax. Um, you know, Bitcoin's a VHS. <laughs> it's, the, it's the big dog right now. All those other ones are Betamax. And, uh, and so that's why we're seeing um, such an influx, and now it's becoming a household name with Bitcoin. So. That adamantity of with Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency where I can sell something without anybody knowing who I am or vice versa, how has that become a useful tool for cyber criminals? Yeah, so um, early on, you know, and it, it, it's funny because, uh, you know, I've been following cryptocurrency since 2011. And, uh, you know, it's like with anything, uh, the Internet, same thing. When the Internet was first invented, there was crime. That was the first thing on it. Anything is just a new invention, crime will always show up there first. Uh, so the an anonymity of it is the fact that a Bitcoin address can't be traced back to a person. So when you create an address, any, in, in, anybody can create an address. As long as you don't put your name to it or put an address to it, your home address, phone number, anything like it's not attached to you. So it makes it really, really hard to equate that Bitcoin address to an actual person. Now, if you, um, with, the, with the blockchain, because every transaction is stored, blockchain is just a public ledger of every transaction, I can go back and look at that transaction. So in a sense, it's less anonymous, or it's, uh, yeah, it's less anonymous than cash. You're more anonymous if you did your nefarious deeds paying cash because I can't track cash. I can trace Bitcoin. Um, and I've been successful in doing that and, you know, in several cases and in, in tracing Bitcoin transactions back to an actual person. Um, and that's due to the fact that they either, you know, name themselves to it or they used what they call exchanges uh, where they went to buy the Bitcoin. And in doing that, they had to give up a checking account, their name, address or whatever in order to buy from that exchange because exchanges are regulated. Um, so yeah, so it's, you know, we like to say it's pseudonymous, the you know, Bitcoin address is pseudonymous. Let's talk about a specific case. You had mentioned a case involving social media. Can we talk about how that case first came to your attention? Yeah. So, uh, when I talked about, you know, my timeline, um, just, uh, through the sheriff's department, I, uh, going back to the sheriff's information bureau, uh, I was asked to go back there and start the electronic communications triage unit. And so we call that ECOM for short. So, you know, I'll call it ECOM from here on here forward. But um, so at ECOM, our primary mission was to, uh, and that was in 2011. So we were, uh, were early, maybe late 2010, early 2011. So we were really the first law enforcement agency in the country to use social media um, as, as vast as we did. I mean, we had 25 plus uh, social media accounts, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram was just coming on board. Uh, so we had all of those accounts. So we were using social media to, to communicate with, 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 our, with our community, um, to better serve our community, to have that dialogue. That was the first time in the history of the internet that we were able to have back and forth communication with what's going on in the communities we patrol. So we, we developed a team that our sole responsibility was to disseminate the sheriff's information, whether it's press releases, what's going on with our department, um, and talking with our community, but also in doing that, um, you know, we, we found, okay, we're coming across crime We're we're coming across people sharing links to child pornography, uh, to, um, talking about that they witnessed a shooting 
um, that they witnessed a murder, um, all these different types of things. So when we would get that information, um, that's where the triage name comes from. We would triage that information and send it to whatever detective bureau would handle that. Well, sometimes that didn't always work. Sometimes we didn't always have a detective bureau to send it to them. One of those instances was, um, you know, what is called social media parties uh, or Facebook parties where teens would post their parties online. And in these postings, they would say, you know, hey, uh, I'm having a party at my house. My house just happens to be in a residential area. Okay. And I'm going to charge at the door. Okay. That's a county violation. Um, you can't charge for a party at a residential house. Okay. In the, in the county of Los Angeles. But in addition to that, they would say, we're going to sell um, alcohol. We're going to sell marijuana. We're going to sell um what the street term uh, was Skittles, um, which basically means uh, your garden variety of whatever medicine you can take from your parents' medicine cabinet, throw it in a baggie, and they would sell it at these parties. Um, in addition to that, they would also sell what they call nitrous oxide. Um, the street term is is NAS. And if not familiar with NAS, basically it is a it's a it's a gas that really only has two relevant uses. One is a doctor's office, a dentist's office, and another is on a racetrack. Now, um, you know, some people may be familiar with it, with the Fast and the Furious movies and um, injecting that into the, the engine system to make the car go faster. Um, that's not a legal use of it, um, but it is a use of it. Um, the doctor's office is more the legal use as far as state of California is concerned, but they did recognize that, okay, you can use that, but on a closed road. Um, you can't use it on a public road. Uh, so we were seeing that this was being advertised and that these kids were inhaling this nitrous oxide. And so basically what it would do is give you maybe like a two to five minute high um, and then it would go away. So they would have to go buy some more nitrous oxide. Or we find at these parties, they would fill balloons with nitrous oxide and they would huff this. And um, problem with that is that, you know, it causes nausea, vomiting, um, headaches, um, it causes you to pass out, um, leading all the way up to death. Um, there's been some individuals that did die from, from inhaling too much nitrous oxide. It, it's a very dangerous gas. Um, so, uh, in, in seeing that we were seeing several parties in the Los Angeles area advertising, um, the sale of this. So we just basically said, you know what? Um, we're seeing all these parties. So listen, we're going to send a radio car there before the party starts. Um, what would happen is these parties would go on, neighbors would call, we'd have to go out to the to the party, tell them to keep the noise down. Uh, we would leave, they'd turn it back up. Um, we'd have to go back. This time we had to bring more units, sometimes an airship. All that stuff costs money, you know, to the county. And so we said, well, they're advertising all these illegal things. Um, let's just stop it before it occurs. Um, and so what we were saying is if we let that party go, um, our, our part one or our felony crimes were increasing in these areas that these parties were occurring. Um, we even had a deputy mom shooting at one of these parties uh, prior to ECOM coming on board. Once ECOM came on board and started dispatching units uh, from the time that we were monitoring these parties, um, we didn't have one uh, deputy involved shooting. Uh, our felony crimes went down. Those are usually, you know, rapes, assaults, uh, uh, burglaries, um, burglaries of vehicles because people would show up at the party, park the car, and they would go through and burglarize the cars as they're in the party. So 
a lot of these crimes by us just dispatching that unit and stopping the party before it occurred, we were able to reduce reduce that part of the crime in those particular areas um, within you know four hours before and after the party. So it was a huge success for us in stopping those parties in that way. So when you say you would dispatch a deputy before the party started, what what would that involve? Would it be just the deputy literally sitting in front of that house before anybody got there? Or what would the deputy do? Yeah, so um, so what we would do is we would just say, all right, listen, um, and the, we, I should say our unit was myself and another deputy, a sergeant, and we had uh, five civilians. Um, we just felt that hiring these five civilians, what we call in our department, law enforcement technicians, um, there was more of a buy-in. Uh, deputies move quite a bit. Um, they move from position to position, but civilians are always, uh, you know, they'll stay at a, a, a particular position or assignment for a long time. And we felt this was the best way to tackle um, this particular um, issue. And so we call them social media dispatchers. Um, a lot of them came from a dispatching job. Law enforcement technicians are dispatchers um, in some stations. Uh, so uh, they would monitor that situation if they saw a party that that clearly um, advertised illegal things like charging to get in, charging for narcotics, charging for NAS, uh, then we would send a radio car there and we would contact the homeowner. And a lot of times, I would say nine times out of 10, the parents had no idea this party was going to take place. It was either the you know, parent was going to leave or they were out of town or, you know, they just, they knew about it, but they said, yeah, I said they can bring a couple of friends, but not the, not 5,000. Um, so we would just, contact the homeowner um, prior to the party starting and show them a printout of the Facebook post and, and say, this is what's about to take place at your house. Do know that if this goes on and we have to come out, you know, you could be billed by the city or the County for expenses for breaking up this party. And a lot of times, like I said, they had no idea. So they would just shut down the party. Um, a lot of times we did contact the person that did advertise the party and let them know what, you know, what, uh, what potential, um, you know, things they're, they're facing if this party went on and if something happened, they would be liable. And a lot of times they would just shut it down. Um, so that's how we, we attacked the, the problem early on. So you're shutting down all these parties. You realize that there's a big trade in this nitrous oxide. Did, did that aspect go anywhere? Yeah. So uh, with the nitrous oxide, what was interesting is what we started looking at was, okay, well, where are these kids getting this nitrous oxide from? Um, and so doing our research, uh, come to find out that, um, you know, like I said before, this was used at, at, at closed racetracks. Um, so what a lot of places would do is they would set up auto repair shops and they would say, you know, we'll work on your car. You get it ready to go on that closed racetrack. We sell nitrous oxide. Um, but what we were finding is that a lot of these shops didn't actually do auto repair. They were called auto repair shops, but when you go in, there was like no tools or no cars being repaired in these shops. But when you walk in, there's just tons and tons of nitrous oxide tanks. Um, so what these places would do is they would buy um, from two major distributors. Uh, they would, uh, they'd fill the tanks. They would either sell the tanks or the person would bring their own tanks, fill them up. And uh, they would take that to the party. Uh, and so we were identifying a lot of these auto repair shops and the parties that were taking place. So we had no idea that on a national level, on a federal level, that the Food and Drug Administration was looking at the two major distributors. Um, and there's one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. Uh, totally legitimate business. 
Um, they're just selling their gas, uh, but they don't know what it's ultimately being used for. So um, they would sell to middle companies and those middle companies would then sell to these, these auto repair shops. So food and drug administration was looking at a higher level. They had no idea we're looking at the party scene. So we basically partnered up with the food and drug administration and said, you know, Hey, listen, this is a serious problem. We have kids, you know, getting in accidents, crashing, killing themselves, dying from huffiness, nas, uh, gang activity is starting to get involved because they would tax the people bringing the tanks to the parties and, um, shootings were occurring because of, you know, over nitrous oxide tanks. So they had no idea at that level. And so once they realized that we basically, uh, conducted a, uh, um, work together on investigation for all of the auto repair shops, quote unquote, auto repair shops in Los Angeles County area, and basically uh, found out who was distributing that illegally. Um, in the state of California, it was illegal to sell nitrous oxide to a miner if you had knowledge that they were going to use it to inhale. Pretty hard to, to prosecute. So um, that was kind of tough to get around. So having the Food and Drug Administration come in, they have a they have a stiffer federal federal penalty that uh, that they can impose for those people selling just selling it outright for for inhaling. Um, so working with them, uh, we did a 20 location search warrant uh, throughout Los Angeles County. I believe one in, in San Bernardino County, and basically uh, eradicated Nas out of Los Angeles County. Um, and as a result of that uh, case, there was five, five individuals arrested. Um, we found se- several assault weapons at these locations, uh, several other types of narcotics. And the seizure was about $21 million in nitrous oxide that was seized as a result of that, that, uh, that search warrant and those apprehensions. Um, and to this day, uh, that is the Food and Drug Administration's largest search warrant operation in the history of their agency. So it was pretty exciting to be a part of that and work with a federal partner and, uh, and, and combating um, this, you know, this problem that really was a neighborhood problem. It was a community problem. So to alleviate, alleviate the community of this, you know, these parties going on, this nitrous oxide and these things occurring, and more importantly, you know, kids dying from inhaling this stuff was, was a huge win for us and a huge win for our communities. For somebody who's interested in going into law enforcement, specifically has a strong interest in cybercrime, uh, what can they do to prepare themselves? Is there any special education training or certification that they can do before actually beginning their law enforcement career? Um, well, you know, before beginning a law enforcement career, I'd always say, uh, you know, I always encourage uh, any applicant to finish, you know, school, go to school, get a degree. Um, if you can, at the very least, uh, get an associate's degree. But um, if you're interested in doing something in law enforcement, um, it doesn't just because you want to go in law enforcement doesn't mean you have to take criminal justice. Um, you know, agencies tend to look more at those people taking psychology, taking uh, business administration, taking, uh, you know, mechanics, uh, computer science, you know, IT, those types of things, and really diversify yourself. Because what I always tell, you know, new recruits and new people coming in is you got to have a job outside of the job. Um, You got to have an interest other than just, you know, hooking and booking (laughs) every day, as we say. Um, you got to have that interest outside. And a lot of times that drives us. So my interest was computers. And I found a very unique way to infuse that into the job I do every day um, with the sheriff's department and, you know, be an integral part of, of the sheriff's department in combating cybercrime. 
So, you know, find that interest that you do every single day and make that part of it. Um, you know, whatever it may be, but, uh, yeah, I always encourage, you know, taking the education and the courses outside, but even if like me, it was just an interest. That's an interest and a passion. Don't give it up. Always remain a student. Always be a student of it. Um, I'm constantly reading blogs. I, I get Google alerts on every type of cyber uh, crime or intrusion or anything of that nature. I'm constantly reading. Um, so you got to remain a student. And you know, I would say that would be the best practice. If you don't go the school route, um, learn about it. Take courses. Uh, I will say the California Department of Justice has a full course um, that you can take. Um, not prior, obviously not prior to becoming a, a law enforcement officer, but once you do become one, if that's the interest you could, you want to go, there are free courses and, and uh, places you can go to get the training, um, to learn up on it. And it doesn't hurt just cause you're not assigned there. It doesn't mean you can't go to those courses. Um, you know, find what, what your interest is and educate yourself on it. So if somebody's listening to this, they're already in law enforcement, maybe they're working patrol and they say, you know, I really want to get into cyber crime investigation. What, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I would, I would say, um, I would say, uh, and, and I did this myself when you're out there, um, and you're taking a call and you have an interest in cyber crime, take every single call that has to do with forgery, fraud and cyber crime. Um, yeah, I don't know how other agencies work, but, um, you know, we have a, a waiting list of calls and I can very easily say, hey, dispatcher, give me, you know, give me tag four, five, six, uh, the one with four due fraud. And they'll give it to you. Uh, it may or may not be in your area that you're responsible for. But believe me, your partner that is in that area, he'll th- <laughs> he or she will thank you for taking that call. Um, so it just uh, you just got to be hungry. So take those calls because that's your opportunity to learn and uh, it's your opportunity to learn. And, uh, and by doing those cases, you're, you're becoming an expert because you have to go to court and testify on, on what you did. And so slowly over time, you'll learn about this and you'll get to work with the, uh, with the investigator that handles that case or, or takes it, uh, to prosecution. So, um, you get a, you get a win-win by doing that. And then not only that, but they'll start to see that you're the one bringing them all these cases and you, you literally, you know, you get, you get a, you get seen uh, by the people that, that make those selections for those units. So um, that's the best way to do it is, is again, just be hungry and take those calls. For people that want to follow your work in cyber crimes, you have a, a Twitter account. What is that Twitter account? Yeah. So I am a LA cyber cop um, on Twitter and uh, that's the only one I have right now. Um, it's just a Twitter account. And I use that to basically, talk a lot about cybercrime and training I do and just the latest, uh, you know, things going on, not only just uh, in cybercrime, but with the Sheriff's Department as well. Detective Moore, thank you for being on the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Oh, thank you uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. And I uh, I really hope, uh, you know, your listeners learned something uh, in the cyber field today. So thanks for having me. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, check out the largest listing of law enforcement jobs on golawenforcement.com. To help you get that law enforcement job you want and deserve, we put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to jobtipsnow.com. That's jobtipsnow.com 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.